Well, today we get to continue working through the gospel according to John in a series called Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And we will be in John chapter 12, if you'd like to uh, start moving there now. We're considering the triumphal entry of Jesus when he was welcomed as a king into the city of Jerusalem. Now, most Christians, I think, would be quick to say that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Have you heard that before? Jesus is Savior and Lord. But what does it actually mean for Jesus to be our King? That's what Lord implies, that He is the ruler of our lives. And this question and learning the answers to this question are really at the heart of the Christian life. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to John chapter 12, starting with verse 12. And we'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well. But we're going to read through this a shorter passage compared to the last number of weeks of scripture we've worked through. So we're going to read through it all first, and then we'll go back and unpack it a bit. John 12, 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd was with him, that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is God's word. So the Apostle John starts this passage by saying that it took place the next day. And if you're you know, new to reading the Bible, I would always encourage you to question what you're reading. Meaning, next day after what exactly? Well, last week we looked at the interaction between Jesus and Mary of Bethany at a dinner held in Jesus' honor for raising Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead. And Mary demonstrated extravagant honor by anointing Jesus with this very costly perfume. And Jesus was really touched by what she had done. But we also saw that chapter 12 marked the start of the week leading up to the cross. Again, as I said last week, time slows way down for John the closer we get to the cross. The first half of John's gospel covers something like two and a half years of time, while the second half only covers about a week. But if all this is true, as we saw last week, then this week would be the most important week in human history. Well, here on the next day, that is six days before the cross, on Sunday morning, the great crowd that had come for the Passover festival to the city of Jerusalem heard that Jesus was on his way. Let's look at that again, and for starting with verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. 
They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So in both of these actions, the way that the crowd welcomes Jesus and the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem, these are both very significant. They're so significant that this story, the triumphal entry, is recorded in all four gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. So far, we've seen people in John's gospel recognize Jesus as many different things. For being a good rabbi, a good teacher, able to preach and teach the word of God. We've seen people recognize Jesus as a mighty prophet, able to do the works of God, including the miraculous signs, such as feeding the 5,000, or walking on the water, or raising Lazarus from the dead. And we've seen in John's gospel, people recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, or the chosen one the anointed one whom God had promised to send to rescue and redeem his people. But here we see that more and more people start to recognize Jesus as king. John emphasizes this by referencing several Old Testament passages. First, Psalm 118, which praises God for providing salvation from death. Now, I really wish that we had time this morning to study all of Psalm 118 because this was such a significant passage for the early church. It's quoted many times in the New Testament because so many people early on saw how clearly it pointed forward to the person and work of Jesus. Now, all four accounts of the gospel record people saying slightly different things. But they all make a reference to praising God for a coming king. Now, think of a large crowd hyped to the max, waving branches and crying out. They were crying out all sorts of things. But they all reference and praise God for a coming king. Here, John says that the people were crying out, Hosanna, which means in Hebrew, Lord, save us, or Yahweh God, save us. And by this time, Hosanna had come to me and basically, praise the Lord, Hosanna. And the reason was because of God's willingness to save was so clear throughout the Old Testament scriptures. His heart was to save. And so if you cried out to the Lord for salvation, you could count on the fact that he would save Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they said. And this is all straight from Psalm 118. But while they were saying these things, they were also waving palm branches, and according to Matthew's account of this story, laying them on the path before Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. Now the palm branches were also from Psalm 118. Later on in the psalm, it mentions a procession of people with boughs in hand at a festival. Is it possible that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem that day would initiate the salvation promised in Psalm 118? In other words, were these people living out the promise of Psalm 118? Second, John references Zechariah 9, 
another passage from the Old Testament scriptures about salvation that specifically references the king of God's people riding on the foal of a donkey. Now, of course, John could have referenced many other Old Testament passages that promised a coming king. It wasn't just two, it's a bunch. You want to do a big Bible study this week, just go start looking for uh, anything talking in the Old Testament about a coming king. I think of passages like Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Something that God promised through Daniel. <clears throat> I think of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, which promised this coming king would be from the house and line of David. Or I think of Micah chapter 5. <clears throat> which we looked at a few weeks ago in the Christmas story, which promised this ruler would come from Bethlehem. But there are so many other passages like this. I, I just imagine being there in the crowd that day. It must have felt like there was this groundswell of support for Jesus and his ministry. If you were one of the disciples, it, wouldn't it have felt like you were just riding in with all the momentum in the world into Jerusalem that day. If you were watching all this unfold, <clears throat> would you have been fearful or do you think you would have been more excited? I think more excited, but maybe, maybe not. Let's look back at verse 16. <clears throat> at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Okay, <laughs> maybe... <laughs> Maybe they weren't as excited as they should have been. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Okay, well, <clears throat> I'm guessing if I would have been there that day, I can't think that I'm that much smarter than these original disciples, right? So I probably would have been excited too, but I also probably wouldn't have been able to connect all the dots from the Old Testament into what was happening that day riding into Jerusalem. John says they didn't fully understand any of that until after Jesus was glorified. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means after he was raised from the dead and then ascended into heaven in glory. So that means even though Jesus repeatedly told his disciples what was going to happen in Jerusalem, including his death and resurrection, they just couldn't believe that he meant that these things would literally happen until they did. And then, as Luke records in his gospel, Jesus opened their minds to understand what the Old Testament scriptures, including the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, had written about him. So we shouldn't get down on the disciples too much for not understanding all this. <laughs> it took the Apostle Paul, who was an expert in the Old Testament scriptures as a Pharisee, something like a decade of Bible study after he became a Christian to be able to fully connect those dots too. Well, let's finish with verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. <clears throat> Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. 
Now, we know from the end of chapter 11 that the crowd of people was buzzing about Jesus in Jerusalem, speculating on whether or not he was going to come to the festival. And here we see that the news that he had raised Lazarus from the dead was spreading like crazy. Of course it would have. Now, this doesn't mean that all these people who were talking about Jesus or, or anticipating Jesus were faithful disciples of Jesus, like Christians, as we would consider them today. No doubt some people just wanted to see this man that everyone was talking about. Perhaps others wanted something from him and didn't care much for him in particular. But all of this buzz was putting more and more pressure on the Pharisees or the religious leaders, the political leaders in Jerusalem. They were frustrated because, as we saw last week, they believed that if Jesus kept gaining support, he would incite a rebellion against the Roman Empire, which would quickly be defeated, and then they would lose, the Pharisees and other members of the Jewish ruling council, they would lose their comfortable positions of power and authority. That's what they were worried about here. They would lose their ability to reign and rule, albeit under the sovereign authority of Rome. They clearly rejected the idea that Jesus was the true king that God had promised to send, but they still saw Jesus as a threat. He was a political threat. They saw him as a rival power that needed to be eliminated. So just a few days after this triumphal entry, we'll see that these rival, jealous powers seem to win. Because Jesus was arrested and condemned by the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He was handed over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, and questioned as to whether or not he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. And Jesus responded by telling Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. But Pilate, though Pilate wasn't convinced that Jesus deserved to die for all of this, he reluctantly agreed. He gave in to the pressures politically to have Jesus crucified. Jesus was then mocked for claiming to be the king of the Jews. He was given a purple robe to wear, a symbol of royalty, and he was given a crown, not of gold, but of thorns. He was spat on, beaten, and dishonored in every way. When Jesus was crucified, the sign above him, which was to declare his charges against him, read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, the tragic irony of all of this is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that he was, in fact, the true king of Israel. He was the king God had promised would come, the king who would be the source of salvation for the people of God, like Psalm 118 promised. Now, from that vantage point, looking back, it all made sense. After all, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. The answer to God's promise in Micah chapter 5. He was of the house and line of King David. The, the answer to God's promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7. The people welcomed him with palm branches as the king of Psalm 118. Jesus rode on the foal of a donkey. The answer to the king of Zechariah chapter 9. And after the resurrection, after he appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses alive, Jesus ascended back into heaven where he was seated at the right hand of God the Father, the seat of power, the seat of glory, where he reigns and rules to this day as the answer to God's promise in Daniel chapter 7. 
Jesus was and is and ever will be the king of all creation. He is the Lord. He is the king of the kingdom of God. As we saw here today, his reign and rule were long foretold. And it was long anticipated by faithful men and women who trusted in the promises of God. But what does this teaching, this triumphal entry, mean for us today? What does it mean for Jesus to be the king of the kingdom of God? <clears throat> well, for our remaining time, I'd like to leave you with two thoughts. First, if this is true, then being a Christian, being a disciple or a follower of Jesus, means that you are under the authority of a king. Regardless of where you live in the world, regardless of what nationality you're a part of, regardless of the system of government that we obey in the laws, according to the laws of our land, we are under the authority of a king. Because of his sacrificial death on the cross for the sins of the world and his victorious resurrection from the dead, we do have a savior. And this is such good news. Because of God's grace, whoever believes in Jesus will never perish, but will have eternal life. This is the life that we might find in Jesus' name. But at the very same time that Jesus is our Savior, He is also our Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And this means that He doesn't just make suggestions of us. He doesn't just make requests of us. He can command us to do things or not do things. And He has the authority to hold us accountable to His sovereign word. We do not have the freedom to pick and choose which of His commands we want to follow. Now I remember in my early 20s, probably teens as well, realizing that if I, if I really believed what I said I believed, that this is who Jesus is, then a lot in my life would need to change. And there were times when, to, just to be honest, I probably thought a lot more like the Pharisees in this passage than I did one of the people welcoming Jesus as the king that he is. Because I, I think rightly saw the lordship of Jesus as a threat to my sovereign power, to my sovereign will, and not as a good thing. You see, if Jesus is Lord, then you are not. But eventually I saw that my authority, my sovereignty, my lordship wasn't leading necessarily to a flourishing life. It was leading to a self-centered, destructive way of life. I needed a better king. I needed a wiser king. I needed a more powerful king. And eventually I knew that my word could never supersede his word. Even if his word or his will corrected my word or my way. Now you can love a king if he is good. You can worship a king if he's God. But as a king, Jesus deserves so much more from us 
than even our love and our worship. He deserves so much more from us than an hour out of our week or a little bit of our money or a little bit of our attention or some of our relationships, you see? He deserves our allegiance, our loyalty, our very lives. So is that how you think about Jesus? Is, is that how you relate to him today? As a king, as the sovereign Lord, now, I ask this knowing that this might be a little challenging for some of us, maybe all of us. We modern Americans have never had the experience of living under a king. We're used to a different form of government, a representative democracy, not a king, not a monarchy. And so the idea of honoring and obeying a king is not something that we're used to. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily a bad thing. I'm not advocating to go back to monarchy rule because of the reality of sin. I'm very thankful for our government system of checks and balances, as imperfect as it is, because all the power isn't in one single person's hands. But the flaws and the corruption and the injustice of our worldly kings and our worldly kingdoms only points more for our, to our need for a truly good king. And Jesus is that king. Now second and finally, the lordship of Jesus ought to change how we see and how we use any power or authority, any leadership opportunities or positions that we might have in our lives. Because Jesus is a king, but he's a different kind of king than the kings of this world. In his life, in his ministry, in his leadership, Jesus repeatedly subverted the typical picture of what a king might say or do, what they might demand even as their right. Instead, Jesus said he came not to be served as a king would certainly deserve, but to serve himself and give his life as a ransom for many. That's a different kind of king. Jesus said that the first in his kingdom would be last, and the last would be first. Jesus said that only those who have the faith of a child would enter his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. In, in a couple weeks, we're going to see Jesus teach his disciples, model for them humble service in washing their feet. In fact, the culmination of his saving work was to humble himself to death, even death on a cross, which was the most painful and shameful way to die. The light of the glory of the risen Lord comes through the darkness of the cross. And so in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in positions of leadership or power or influence in, in here in our community, and especially in the church, godly men and women must lead like Jesus. His power is not used to oppress or exploit. His authority is never used to abuse or to harm. The way of Jesus is to use power and authority as a tool of love, teach people, 
to heal people, to restore people, to redeem people, to free people. Power in the kingdom where Jesus is king is only ever used for the glory of God and the good of all people. Is this how you understand power? Is this how you understand leadership as a Christian? Not domineering, not harsh, not demanding, but giving, sacrificing, serving, and loving. This is the way of our King, our Lord, the one who deserves all of our glory, honor, and praise. So today, may we give him our allegiance. May we serve him as our good and faithful king. And may we follow his way of love, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son Jesus into this world to be our savior and to be our Lord. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive us when we try and steal back, take back your sovereign power, when we try to put ourselves in your place, when we put ourselves on your throne, when we put our word above yours. Lord Jesus, would you forgive us? And would you help us follow? Would you humble us to follow? Would you empower us to use whatever power or authority or influence that we might have in this broken world for your glory and for the good of all people? Would you encourage us, Lord, by your spirit to follow your way, to obey your word, and to give you the glory that you deserve? Lord Jesus, we love you. And part of your lordship over our lives is a reflection of your goodness, your faithfulness to us. Lord Jesus, you could command us, you could demand things from us, Yet you beckon us, you invite us, and you guide us because of your love for us. Help us to understand how you are a different kind of king. And so learn and apply those lessons to the areas of our leadership in life. Lord Jesus, we want to lead like you because we want to follow your way. We thank you for all of these things. King Jesus. It's in your sovereign name that we pray. Amen.